Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. And another exciting week with legal and legal-slash-political headlines, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that seems to be uh, the offering every week, Mitch. We could probably just poach off of headlines and focus on the Beltway and get through probably an entire year's worth of programs. Uh, What I wanted to do today, uh, and I'll take credit for this idea, so if it belly flops, it's on me. But but it dawned on me that... uh, the topic of reputation is is a is a discussion worthy uh, topic to take on, and I wondered, and I'll just ask it this way, Mitch: When's the last time you visited the court of public opinion? Have you ever been to that court? I I must say I have. I I think it happened this week when we were following the Alabama Senate race. Yeah, so we don't have a brick-and-mortar type courthouse for the court of public opinion, but that is going to be our topic today, Mitch, and I wanted to reach a number of issues that are connected to reputation and character and the importance of those uh, those attributes and those, those issues. Um, of course, we can lead off by talking about uh, the great state of Alabama, and Judge Moore, and uh, now are about to be seated, uh, Senator Jones. I don't think that tallies in yet officially, right? I believe that's correct. They're waiting for the certification by the Secretary of State, I believe, and the governor, at, which is typical. You know, they, they need to certify that the election, and particularly elections that are very, very close, do not trigger an automatic recount, which it does not appear to so far in Alabama, but they're just dotting their I's and crossing their T's to make sure. Yeah. So, you know, Mitch, one thing I thought would be interesting to talk about is the idea of opinion and and reputation and character-like issues. Uh, we can talk about it within the context of our civil laws and maybe even our criminal laws because reputation does actually find its way into both criminal and civil trials in our system. And as we mentioned in the lead, we can use the uh, Senate race in Alabama maybe as a backdrop to talk about the impact of, uh, well, I'm going to go with news stories and claims and allegations that I think is it's probably safe to say that that had a dramatic impact on Judge Moore's uh, run. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think you bring a particularly valid and, and important view to this, Stephen, because as a prosecutor, you're almost your entire career, you have been under the spotlight of knowing things about individuals that start as allegations. And it would be much easier, I'm sure, for you to lay out your case with a local newspaper versus actually doing it in the courtroom. And there are professional rules that restrict what you can and should do in that respect, right? Oh, yes, absolutely, Mitch. And, and you know, uh, most prosecuting agencies are very careful uh, about knowing the important differences and, and setting very clear guidelines as to how they proceed on certain cases. Uh, within the context of Judge Moore's uh, run for the Senate, you know, there's there's obvious news saturation about uh, the allegations of inappropriate contacts and uh, assaultive, sexual assaultive-like behavior. Um, but 
the impact that it had, and, and, and he's a public figure, that's another issue I wanted to talk about because we can also weave in the issue of defamation, libel, slander. There's a number of ways we can go with the topic. But and statute of limitations, which comes sure. as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. The timeliness factor um, of actually bringing a lawsuit if, in fact, you're proceeding on some kind of a defamation claim, uh, which comes in two forms, libel meaning written uh, in nature, uh, a statement that holds the uh, individual up to ridicule or shame in the public eye. And then there's slander, which is the spoken word that can put somebody in a, uh, in a disparaging position or a position of uh, vulnerability. But, you know, it's, it's interesting, Mitch, to me that there's not necessarily ironclad proof yet of any wrongdoing, yet the impact was obviously dramatic uh, in the case of Judge Moore's run. I think that's right. And that's, that's one of the things that I think as lawyers, we step back and have a little greater pause because we're used to these type of claims being made uh, at following a certain procedure with a certain protocol. Uh, you have lawyers that are generally advising individuals as what's appropriate to talk about in the press what is appropriate to take to the prosecuting authority, whether it's local, state, federal. And this, this case, particularly with allegations that are very, very old, uh, what, 30 years plus, right, right. don't really fall into what are easy answers for us as lawyers because we go, well, that's just, as we just talked about, statute of limitations, uh, there were a lot of there's a lot of discussion of if uh, if these happened at the time they happened, why weren't they brought forth at the time? And then I think you're absolutely right. The answer has been because of the nature of the power relationship between the accused and the accuser, and public mores at the time of whether or not that type of an individual or that type of a claim would even receive a, legit, a legitimate response, have really muddied these waters. And so what I think you're right, what ends up is there's not an active claim that appears to be going through the actual court system, but it is all played out in what you framed as the court of public opinion. And yeah, yeah and, I think that's and, right. And your points, I think, just right on, I mean, you're right on point. That's exactly what we just watched happen. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I think about uh, quips or phrases like perception is reality uh, and what happens when there's media saturation on a certain issue uh, that gets such uh, intense publication that the tides turn so dramatically. And I haven't crunched numbers and obviously I'm not a, a pundit or any kind of a political strategist, but everything I read indicates that there's no doubt that Judge Moore uh, was absolutely hampered, you know, by all of these these allegations. I mean, I'm looking at the timeline and the tumultuous campaign and the way things unfolded, including the GOP, you know, pulling money back. Uh, it's just profound in nature, the effect that it had. And so let's add to, uh, let's add another aspect to that, which I, because I think i I don't think we disagree on that at all about how it rolled out. I think it's just as important to look at the different ways that uh, the accused in these cases have responded. And there's been different outcomes uh, based on that because Moore is just one of, of several dozen that are very high profile over the last two months. Uh, in this case, you had the accused a, a former sitting Supreme Court judge from the state of Alabama who at one point was saying he didn't know or or have any he didn't even know the people that were making the claims and I think we've seen the same thing with the President of the United States who's now recently said he didn't know any of these accusers and they're all liars and I think there was actually some parallel with those two strategies of saying, I just don't know them. It was a long time ago. 
and, and they're just liars. What I think hurt more most was not whether or not people wanted to give a balance of, maybe hey, it's a he said, she said. But it, this, most of us can read the response and make a judgment of, are they telling the truth about an underlying fact? Did I even know them? And if we find a lie, or what appears to be a lie, in that, then I'm not sure the voters went all the way to say, do I think he actually did the, uh, the multiple cases of sexual harassment or sexual assault? It goes to exactly what you just said. The character of the individual starts to get judged. And in the public sector, isn't that what we're trying to elect or not yeah, you know, Mitch, great point. I see this play out in courtrooms all the time. And the point that you're raising now is not necessarily the merits of the claims, but the reaction of the accused or the target. And that is a very significant issue, uh, I think, certainly in the public sector, when you're dealing with a public figure, how do they respond to those claims? And your point uh, with respect to identifying an underlying fact that is maybe categorically wrong, uh, that sets the stage, I think, for a snowball effect where I think public perception then starts to just focus on the first utterance that the person makes. And if that's not credible, then the logical inference is, for many, that uh, anything he says is not credible. And, and what's interesting in our system, Mitch, we've talked about this uh, when we've talked about evidence, is, is there's an instruction that uh, seated jurors get that relates to believability of witnesses. And jurors are instructed to consider the demeanor of the witness, whether there's prior inconsistent statements made. So there's a number of measuring devices that jurors are instructed to use in an effort to assign credibility. And you, you, your, your point there, I think, is very well taken because reactions matter. Initial reactions matter. And, then, sure. and let's take it one step further, Stephen, because I think this, this is exactly, you know, it, it's played out in the news. I think in the Judge Moore case, I think you, you're exactly right that we see it play out in the reaction of jurors to various witnesses. It's the first reaction, and then it's whether they or how many times they then change their mind and have a different story. Yeah, so yeah. then we start to say, no, wait a minute. The first reaction was X. The second reaction was Y. Now they're back to X. Now they're back to Y. Now they've added something completely different in. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's that gets that a little bit. Yeah, that gets the name sort of the, the flip-flopping label there, but... That's a classic example of prior inconsistent statements. You know, now you've made one statement uh, and you make subsequent statements that are inconsistent and that casts doubt upon really everything. And that goes to that issue of the believability of witnesses, which is a, 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 main, a great, great point. We can pick back up on that after the break. And let's expand a little bit on defamation and public figures too, Mitch. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio, and we're talking about the court of public opinion and the topic of reputation, the importance of reputation. Please don't go away. We'll be right back after this break. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. 
dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information... This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about the court of public opinion. You won't find it on a street corner. You will not find it uh, downtown. It's instead, what, not a brick and mortar type topic, right, Mitch? That's right. But I, I just, I love the distinction and or the, the parallels you're drawing, Stephen, of the, of asking the question, even outside of the structure of traditional courts, does does the court of public opinion tend to follow rules that are similar, even though they're unwritten rules? And that's part of what we're talking about, whether credibility of an accuser comes into play. It's an accuser. In one case, it might be a witness in the courtroom. The response of the accuser the accused, and whether they're consistent, believable, uh, whether they flip-flop back and forth. Those are things we see play out in a jury trial all the time, and yet it appears that they get judged similarly in this court of public opinion. Yeah, I think that's right, Mitch. So uh, before the break, I had talked about believability of witnesses in our system, and it's really an important jury instruction that is uh, commonly used in criminal cases. There's a similar one that's used in civil cases. So what happens is that any time a witness uh, submits and takes an oath to testify truthfully, their credibility is automatically in play. In other words, automatically relevant. So a number of things happen by virtue of the administration of the oath, meaning that that witness can be tested uh, with questions that relate to reputation. Um, Perhaps some character-related questions can be asked of that witness also, and that's all admissible in our courts. Now, it's subject to uh, challenges pretrial, but very often there is a means by which you can introduce some character issues. Now, if we use the corollary and look into the court of public opinion, in other words, perception and how information's processed, we have a media factor, and that's a big deal. And I think in a courtroom, jurors who are impaneled to sit in a case are obviously not supposed to be doing any outside reading, right, Mitch? That's right. In fact, they're given that instruction specifically. Right. 
usually by the judge with a very stern look. <laughs> uh, that's true. Okay. Of course, now the reality is that all prospective jurors come in with preconceived notions. Some are well-read and read uh, and use various different types of media outlets as their resources. Uh, but the measuring stick, and that's the issue that you had raised, back to the corollary, I do think that public opinion um, and the way people process information and your point about how a target reacts to something, and we use the example of Judge Moore in Alabama. What were the initial responses? Were they credible or were they dubious in nature? And what's the outgrowth of that? So in other words, if you start on a slippery slope and your first statement is somewhat dubious, what usually happens is it cascades into to more doubt and unbelievability. And then you've raised the point of, well, let me, let me talk about the media part because I think that's critical in this. Because in the courtroom, you have judges, attorneys filtering some of the information and, and framing what is or isn't allowed and is, is or isn't appropriate both in the questioning and the answers and even who gets to be brought forward. In the court of public opinion, your point's extremely well taken. The media steps in as, as the intermediary in judging whether a story is, is worthy of printing, whether, a, a, in this case, a witness or a source is, is, will, is credible. And so the, the, that's, that's what has given pause to some folks to say, well, wait a minute, I'm getting only what is filtered first by the media. And we've never had a point in time that I remember where the media has been under such attack as to whether or not they are following their historic methodology of vetting sources, getting multiple sources, trying to be objective, trying to get statements from both sides. I mean, that has been the bedrock of core journalistic ethics that have been under attack in the past year. Sure, absolutely. And then, you know, Mitch, you add to this uh, discussion, cases involving public figures. And, and that's, and I wanted to kind of go in that direction a little bit and raise that issue uh, from a, a, a defamation standpoint, because that's also a topic that I wanted to raise. Uh, if there is a defamatory statement made about a public figure, uh, the system that's in place that guides whether or not there's a viable claim uh, applies a different standard. So in other words, if you are the recipient or the target of news stories that paint you in uh, a bad light or make you out to be um, unscrupulous or there's some kind of statement that um, lowers your esteem or your level professionally, if you're a private citizen versus a public figure, there's a dramatic difference in terms of how you can proceed in our system. And there's a seminal case, ironically, out of Alabama, and that is New York Times versus Sullivan, uh, which loosely goes by the name of the um, New York Times malice standard. And in that case, uh, it related to a public figure who was the target or the subject of uh, news stories that uh, he alleged were disparaging. And the quantum of proof in that case is actual malice, meaning that the publisher or the author of the article must have known that the story was false before it was published. So and there's, you, yeah, no, I love it. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? That you talk about, talk about mens re, right? Intent, mm -hmm. actually actual knowledge and intent to have the outcome that injured the person. And, and it comes right back to that as, as the standard here, doesn't it? That for, yeah, a public, yeah. for a public figure, you have to prove that the, in this case, the news media knew it was false and intentionally published it knowing what the effect would be. That's right. right. And, and in, in the context of a private uh, party, private party plaintiff, in other words, the aggrieved party, someone who has been the target of of uh, defamatory statements, that party has a different burden to prove. 
um, it's not as high as the public figure standard. Uh, a, a quantum of proof that shows negligence and disregard for uh, veracity measures or measures to confirm the truth of stories is more the standard in that kind of setting. So I think it's fair to say it's it's probably fair to say that as a general rule across the public figures, it's very difficult for someone who voluntarily puts themselves into the public light, particularly if they're running for election or they're in uh, or they're an actor or actress. It's very difficult for them to prove that uh, they're entitled to a, the same level of privacy and scrutiny that private figures are. Yes, so yes. They've voluntarily done it. That's the argument. That they yes, do. exactly. That's true. And as I recall learning this in law school um, and then actually confronting the issue professionally in, this, in the civil context in, in a case, um, the, the rationale behind that, and I think you hit it, is that the public figure benefits from what the cases call mounting the rostrum. You like that, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, they use the pulpit, right? Right. For right. for their benefit. So uh, that's the rationale behind there being a higher standard for a public figure to court a theory successfully, a defamation theory uh, successfully. So here's so the here's interesting the turnaround: that if we shift briefly to the claims made against President Trump, they. The statute of limitations have run on uh, maybe all of the sexual harassment claims, except the case now being brought is a flip of exactly what you just talked about. So now you have an accuser who would have been, who would not have had a, a criminal claim under the statute of limitations for harassment, but came out publicly with the, their claim. And then their allegation now is, when the president, as a public figure, called her a liar using his rostrum, mounting the rostrum, that it then created a new cause of action of slander against her for the new statement he made about calling her a liar. I have to say that I thought that was a very clever legal strategy for her attorneys. Yeah, that's interesting. So... The idea there was that he took advantage of his position to make that statement in in a public in a forum where he was. I think what was that a was that a press briefing? I don't remember the backstory. A press briefing and repeated a number of times at campaign uh, campaign stops. Yeah, uh, and so th these same issues become very nuanced in as far as the application of the law. And we're, they're waiting. So far, there have been attempts by the president to have that case thrown out unsuccessfully. So that case continues to progress through the normal course of the court system. Yeah, and, yeah, just, and just by way of uh, defining some terms, Mitch, that, you know, the slander is the spoken word and the theory by which a defamation action is based upon what somebody said, whereas libel is in print um, and mm, considered, I think, historically is really more indelible. You know, if it's in print, it stays out there for a long time. So let me ask you one other aspect of this, Stephen, because you talked about the credibility of claims, which, again, we we think it's being evaluated in the court of public opinion as well as the actual court. But the number of claims made, and, and they've ranged widely in the news from individuals who have claims made by one person up to individuals who've had sexual harassment claims with people coming forth publicly for as many as a dozen or 16 or 19. Is there a parallel there as well? When you're prosecuting a case, you have one witness. And in some cases, one witness is all you need because that, that's the person being protected. But if you have a series of similar claims about about it, that appear to be credible claims, does that change the weight in the courtroom? And do you think that's having an effect in the court of public opinion as well? Yeah, so, you know, in, in terms of uh, the one witness versus several witnesses, mentioned, it, it sounds like you're getting to the issue of corroboration and, and a scenario where very often you have uh, one accuser 
one person making a claim and then one suspect, the accused. And first of all, I should say that it's within the context of sexual assault-like cases, it is not uncommon at all for there to be only two parties to that. In other words, the suspect and the accuser. So um, what you had called the he said, she said, or the so-called one witness uh, making a claim against one suspect is absolutely not uncommon at all. Um, and then the issue of number of witnesses and whether or not there's prior, prior bad acts or evidence to suggest that these similar events or allegations have happened in the past may well be admissible in court, depending upon the strength of the evidence uh, and what happens in a pretrial posture. So it's, it, it, there, it, there is then a, a trade-off in the, and not a trade-off as much as, but another similarity that we're drawing parallels of in a courtroom where you would look for corroborating witnesses. What we see is the media appears to be looking for corroborating, what we would call corroborating witnesses as yeah, well. That, that's true. I, I would add that they may be a little cavalier sometimes in their pursuits, Mitch. I've got to get that out, right? Well, and they can do it as anonymous as anonymous witnesses. They're not, they, there's not an obligation that they name the name. That's true. They can do that. And let, let's expand on that issue of the one witness, because I've got some more things to share on that, Mitch, and the issue of credibility of witnesses, too. So when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about uh, that topic and maybe bring up some other issues connected to uh, defamation-related claims. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're talking about the court of public opinion, which in essence is a study of reputation. We'll continue that discussion when we come back after this word from our sponsors. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. 
constitutioncenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to constitutioncenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We've been talking about the court of public opinion, and that's the way we've cast our topic today. We're really talking about reputation. And Mitch, before the break, you had raised the issue of one witness versus a number of witnesses. And what I wanted to add to that is that when there is a claim made by one witness in a criminal case, very often there could be other supporting witnesses that perhaps help corroborate in some way the claims of that witness. And that, that then uh, led to a discussion of whether or not those witnesses will be permitted to testify. And what I wanted to share is that a witness before testifying does go through some uh, steps to ensure that they're actually going to offer relevant testimony. So our system in place, certainly in criminal cases uh, and civil cases, is that there's an opportunity for the party that challenges the witness's testimony to hear first outside of the trier of fact what they are bringing uh, to, the, to the witness stand. In other words, what's the relevance of their testimony? If it doesn't have any bearing, in other words, if it doesn't help prove or disprove a claim that's germane to the criminal case, then that witness doesn't get to testify. In other words, there needs to be um, a nexus, a, a procedural and logical nexus. So I think it's fair to say that the, the, there's not exactly that acuity of scrutiny by the media in judging those statements. But... We all should keep that in mind, that it's still, we're still trying to judge, not on, the, not on whether somebody has a voice, and I think that's an important part that, that you just brought out as well. You have the vehicle to bring your voice forward, whether you're a witness or an accuser in civil, criminal, and absolutely you should have that same right on the, in the court of public opinion. So these claims that the attempt to shut down women's opinions, uh, dismiss, denigrate, give less weight to their claims, I fall clearly on the side of absolutely they should have a voice. If, if their voice turns out to be untrue or malicious or any of those categories, we've got opportunities. There are protections in the law for people who abuse the system that way. But the balance should be give them a public voice. If there's a legal claim, give them a, a voice in court. And the systems are both set out to let people judge how the facts fall out. Yeah, there, it's the, the stark difference is that in, a, in the court system, uh, there is a number of what I'm going to call gatekeeper procedures. Uh, in other words, a witness or someone claiming that they were the victim of a crime goes through, obviously, a lot of scrutiny and steps from the incident report to the charging decision. There's a lot of vetting and review before a charge is made. Um, in the case of a witness that might be offering testimony in relation to a criminal case, as I indicated, there's got to be some relevance um, and a basis for the testimony. And, and, and the difference there is that in media, the gloves are really kind of off, aren't they? I mean, as long as there is a so-called credible source connected to a story, um, it's time to go to print, and all of a sudden it's out there. I think that's right. And there, we've heard historically, and, and in fact, there was recently a very prominent news reporter who was sanctioned by his own station because he went to print with only one source. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a question of whether or not the source was or wasn't accurate in the claim. It was that they didn't 
follow the ethical standards of their profession, which is they needed to corroborate it with at least another source before they could make that claim in print or on air. The challenge here is that it's a self-regulating industry, right? That we recount on the media to follow its own ethical rules. And historically, that seems to have worked pretty well. Obviously, the president doesn't believe it's working at all right now. But then that's his opinion. <laughs> yeah, you know, Mitch, and if you look, and I, I certainly don't want to start naming major media outlets, um, whether it be print or or uh, or television-based media, but if you really think about it um, and you wanted to poll your friends or your peer group about where they go for news, uh, there's dramatic differences, I think, in opinion as to how veracity and truth of stories are measured and the nature of the investigative reporting. Uh, I mean, is there truly unbiased media outlets out there as a topic we could probably talk about until midnight, right? That's right. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about whether some of these are even media outlets. <clears throat> we talked about the the issue of of offshore other countries possibly using what appear to be media outlets to plant and promote stories. So I, I think it is is clearly more complicated now than ever because of, of the access, which I guess many times what we try to do on the program is give people guidance, right? You know, here's the law. Here are the rules. Here's what you're reading. Uh, perhaps we can help you judge better on your own to how this works. This one's the, probably the greatest challenge that we've ever tackled as far as how do you as the consumer of information uh, better judge on your own because of all these factors. Yeah, you know, Mitch, the other topic that we did raise once before, and I don't remember the backdrop necessarily, but we talked about online reviews, and it dawned on me that that's a, an interesting topic, too, because when you look at online reviews of certain services and the hospitality industry comes to mind, and that may well be one we talked about before, um, it's not uncommon to go online to see reviews from people, and some of them are very scathing, right? And That's and really, you know, cast aspersions uh, toward a certain business in some sort. Now, that that's free you know, First Amendment right to offer your opinion, um, you know, in those kind of settings. And it, it's rare that it rises to the level of trade disparagement or something that's actual, actually tortious in nature. So you've made another, uh, you've drawn another distinction that I think is important when we're talking about how do we consume this information. Editorial content through the media is different than reporting content or at least it should be, the, the media has always attempted to make a, a clear distinction that editorial content comments about what others have said or comments about what others have done should be on the editorial page and clearly labeled as this is just our opinion. It's not based on investigative reporting. It's based on editorial content. The reporting side of the news media should not have that. In theory, it should be unbiased based on the facts, attempt to show both sides, attempt to get comments from both sides, and to try to characterize it so that the reader can judge. But there's been claims that that has become blurred over the past few years. Ab absolutely, Mitch. I remember learning and, and taking that topic on in torts class in law school the idea of the wordsmithing aspect, and that's when the writer makes makes um, overt attempts or efforts to ensure that it's his or her, quote, opinion, right? How many times do you see that word, right, opinion right. used? And I mean, if you look historically, there's a good reason for that. How about the uh, disclaimer that follows bumper music in a radio show? that states that the views and opinions of the hosts are not necessarily the views of this station, right? right why is, right. So why is that embedded in there? That's right, well, because the station's providing the First Amendment access for you and I to give our opinions on these shows without them having to say that they're endorsing those opinions. 
Christians. That's right. It gives that distinction of ours is clearly editorial opinion. Our entire content is just editorial opinion, if you want to use those two descriptions. Uh, and, we, and we then take it one step further to remind folks that even though we're attorneys, this is our editorial opinion edu for educational purposes. We're not giving legal advice. That would be a, we would, we would opine quite differently if that were the case, wouldn't we? That's right. That's, right. that's sure. And there's good reason that that's part of our disclaimer. I think that's still the voice of Bill Graff coming out there, right? That's right. Yeah. So I think one of the things, as we kind of get to the final steps here, uh, I think it is important for us to, to think about that there's a clear distinction in this court of public opinion when it's an election standard. We started and we've spent most of our time talking about Judge Moore and the outcome there. And, and I, I think you and I completely agree that that election was the court of public opinion. It was based on all kinds of information from a variety of sources, many of them untested by the legal standards that you and I would expect to find in a courtroom, but clearly out there for the public to judge. And I think that election was indeed a very large jury decision. <laughs> that if you were, depending on uh, the standards you had to meet, Stephen, let's see, it was only... I think it's just barely more than 1% difference in the opinion on one side versus the opinion of the other. Yeah. You might have had a hung jury if that were in the courtroom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but in, in this case, it's, it, that's the way the elections, the elections work. I think we should, as we continue to apply this, this aspect you've challenged us with is how should the court of public opinion function? How should we be fair? How should we be uh, give it greater scrutiny? I, I think you and I would probably agree that we would hope that our listeners and the community are weighed more by the same core standards that we like to see in the court system of of using their judgment in a. And I'm not sure they always realize how important that judgment of the of the community is. I think that's right, Mitch, and I think that it's also safe to say that everyone has their own innate, what I'll call trust, but verify kind of system, and, right. and I, I would say that that's, it's critical that you do that, um, that, that everybody should assign their own trust, but verify type of mantra to really everything they take on, including stories that they read, um, and, and that's just good sound advice. I think it is, and and our challenge is to, in this in these times with with digital media, to to hold the media up to higher scrutiny, to to dig down and say what are the sources they're really using, what what is their character, right? I think we could apply the same rules to the individual media outlets that you've suggested that we apply to an individual witness, of what's their history, what's their orientation, what's their character. Have they been consistent? Do they flip-flop? Is this editorial or is this investigative reporting? I think we can hold the media to a higher standard as well because if we turn them off, then we have the ultimate vote, right? Yeah, that's good. Good point. Yeah, well stated. So, well, I'm glad you picked this topic, Stephen. I think this is one that, that we're going to have to continue to, to look at. We haven't seen the last of the the Court of Public Opinion judging on issues related to sexual harassment. Many of these cases are still pending. We've had a number of resignations, both in the private sector and the public sector. I don't think we've seen the end of that. Uh, I think we'll have to judge at the end of this phase of, of has the Court of, a public, Court of Public Opinion worked well? I think we're right in the middle of the process, still to be determined. Wouldn't you say sure that? Good show, Mitch. <laughs> All yeah. right. Thanks, Stephen. As always, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can hear an archive of today's program at voiceamerica.com business or at wagnerandwinnick.com. We suggest to you every week on this show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. 
I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. 